0: I am not prepared for the United Kingdom to become directly involved in the conflict.
1: We should take a step back and recognise that we've put together one of the strongest set of economic sanctions that the world has ever seen, and that's really hampered Putin's war effort. Clearly, there can be no question of, of, of NATO forces actually deploying on the ground, because that would precipitate a third world war.
2: I want to be clear, very clear. Putin's goal is to undermine and destroy democracy.
0: Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. Is the world a safer place or is it more dangerous since the invasion of Ukraine? Alan, it's a really important question. Why did you want us to look at it now?
3: Well, I wanted to look at it now partly because I'm anxious, but I reckon I'm not the only person who's anxious. We're in one of those difficult moments in history where we haven't really got the luxury to think about what might make things better, but we can maybe think hard about how to stop things from getting worse, whether that's about the economy or climate change or what's happening in the world, in the international system, in foreign policy, in war. I don't quite know what's going on, but I know some people... Who
0: do? Okay, let's ask them. So our experts today, Dr. Suzanne Doyle, a lecturer in international relations, and Dr. Ra Mason, associate professor and an expert in the foreign relations of China and Japan. Are we safer or more dangerous since the invasion? Suzanne, what do you think? We are more dangerous. Okay. Ra, what do you think?
4: We are more dangerous.
0: OK, and I'm, now I'm, I'm really worried. Yeah, I'm not reassured. You're no. supposed to make me feel safer and better. OK, okay. thank you for your honesty. Thank you for being I'm going to come to the wine in a minute. But I want to start... I want to next talk to um, Alex Birov, who is a UA postgraduate student and who's from Kiev in Ukraine. And, Alex, it's been a really tumultuous year. Um, what's it been like for you as a Ukrainian citizen and for, for your family, first of all?
1: Well, um... My family has been they've been luckily been alright because they are all stationed around and in Kyiv, which is the capital. So yes there was rocket strikes and everything, so they've had to hide in a <laughs> in a hospital for two and a half months. Uh, so yeah, it was it was quite scary on the onset, but now that the initial axis uh, access of assault has been repelled on Kyiv, hopefully. Um, yeah, the, they're doing they're doing better now
0: and do you feel quite anxious as as we sort of alluded to about about mm. global security and about
1: yes definitely um sort of the 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 nuclear language that's being thrown around is very worrying especially for somebody as young as me uh also the impact on my country where i grew up where i studied initially where i have most of my friends uh yeah it's it's a it's a scary situation in local terms geopolitically and also in global terms, definitely.
0: Thanks, Alex. So let's go back to Suzanne and Ra. I said we'd get into the whys. Why, Suzanne, are we more dangerous in a more dangerous situation now since the invasion of Ukraine?
2: There are a huge variety of reasons, and I won't go into too much detail on each. We can go into that. Um, firstly, the nuclear aspects. Uh, the kind of posturing that's occurring, the use of nuclear energy plants as shields, the accidents could come from that, the possible re- risk of tactical nuclear weapons, the miscalculation that could occur with nukes, and then the use of force. That The tactics that the Russians are having to use is kind of om- overwhelming use of military technology and destruction Uh, because their forces on the ground have not been very effective, and so they're using those tactics. Uh, And then the wider lessons of that, that China could be taken for Taiwan, and then the risk of other states being dragged into the conflict.
3: Thanks for making me feel sorry (laughs) about things. But listen, Suzanne, I mean, I'm, I'm old enough, right, like a lot of people, to have kind of lived through the shadow of nuclear war before, and it wasn't great, we did worry about it, but we came through it. And I know you've studied that whole period and, and the reasons why conflict was avoided. We had rules in place. The people had lines of communication. Isn't that just going to happen again, that people talk a lot about it, but actually in the end no one's that crazy and we do have rules? Or is that, is that has that sort of architecture that kept things a bit safe fallen apart? So I'm not going to reassure you on your memory of
2: the past because what we're discovering as we go through the archival material on the Cold War is how lucky we were. So luck was absolutely crucial. Uh, if we look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, policymakers did not act in a calm, rational way. With nuclear weapons and the posturing that takes place, it's like two people running, driving a car towards the end of, edge of a cliff and hoping someone backs out first. So our memories of the Cold War are different to what we had and also with uh, the risks today of nuclear weapons it is that real risk of miscalculation and that again involves a great degree of luck and risks are being taken and we think that we are safe with nuclear weapons until something happens.
3: So c- can you tell me a bit more about because I know I think you, you know about actual facts and stuff that I don't <laughs> know about <yeah? laughs> So like Russia has a lot of nuclear weapons but isn't there a whole set of protocols? I mean the the President or General can't just say fire nuclear weapons surely?
2: No, so there is protocols in place and there's always a level of kind of that we don't know how secure those protocols are so there's always been certain um, speculation about how much automation is in Russian nuclear forces but the real concern is not necessary that Putin would order a nuclear weapon strike, although his rationality can be questioned given the fact he decided to launch a whole scale invasion of Ukraine. And any strategic analysis would tell you that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So there's definite evidence of kind of bunker syndrome. But what we really worry about is that we are seeing, um, is that you can have accidents that people, you don't know what the other side have done. And so you will enter this kind of nuclear miscalculation where people might think, oh, we could launch because we think the other side have. There's that risk. It's minute, but there is that risk. There's also the risk, as I said earlier, of tactical nuclear weapons, which are kind of smaller yield weapons on the battlefield. Now, some people are worried that because Russian forces haven't made the gains that they wish to, that they, we could see the use of these weapons. Again, we can make questions of rationality there because, you know, Russian forces would, be, would have the effects of those nuclear weapons. Again, there's always that risk. Uh, and the other thing that we're seeing is the kind of nuclear posturing. The breakdown in the arms control regime, Uh, so the end of uh, start verification checks uh, in the Russian said last week, we're not gonna send uh, kind of people to the US to verify how many nuclear weapons you are. That all undermines the uh, arms control regime. So this goes alongside the kind of rapid modernization we're seeing of US, Russia, other nuclear weapon states as forces. So the further increase of nuclear weapons. As we increase, we have more risk. So let me ask you
3: one more question. So, again, back back in back in the past, that obviously I misremember, or <laughs> we didn't know what was really going on, a lot of the talk was about nuclear winter, blowback of radiation, Chernobyl show how far radiation spread. So it seems to me we know that. So surely that makes it unlikely that anyone would want to drop a nuclear weapon, particularly nearby their own borders. And secondly... Okay, we talk about Putin as being crazy irrational, but we always talk about leaders of other countries in conflicts like that. They're not that irrational, right? Surely. So isn't there a bit of hype around this to make us kind of feel more worried and as part of Western strategy? Or is there really that that kind of risk? Surely no one would do it.
2: There is hype. And what I just said can be seen as hype. But is that fact that... The risks involved with nuclear weapons are so huge that we have to highlight any increase in risk. Any kind of accident, etc., could destroy huge parts of the world. And we can say, okay, well, Putin isn't going to behave that irrationally. But what would happen if he was really pushed to the edge, if his legitimacy was on the line? Which it could be. I mean, he's not made the gains that he wanted in Ukraine. And so there could be, and it's a very small risk, but it is there, a kind of, okay, well, maybe the use of tactical nukes, something else would get me somewhere else. I mean, the sheer amount of missile force and destruction that he's, that Russia has unleashed on Ukraine means that certain kind of boundaries have already been crossed.
0: I want to play you a clip from Stephen Lovegrove. He's the UK's uh, national security advisor, and he gave a speech to the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in July. And he was saying that the invasion of Ukraine really fits a pattern of Russia acting to undermine global security.
1: What is happening in Ukraine is also a manifestation, though, of a much broader context unfolding over the successor to the post-Cold War international order. And that context has profound implications. It will decide whether we live in a world in which regionally aggressive powers such as China and Russia can pursue might-is-right agendas unchecked or a world in which all states can ensure their sovereignty. Competition does not spill over into conflict and we cooperate to protect the planet.
0: So is this what we're worried about, that kind of might is right agenda that we're seeing from Russia at the moment?
2: Yes. Another real fear is the lessons for China with Taiwan of to, and I'd be interested in Ra's view on this, of that you have to use overwhelming force. That China is learning to secure Taiwan. You kind of enter quickly you overwhelm, you achieve a fair accompli.
0: Well, let's ask Ro about that then, because um, China's a really interesting case, isn't it? And there's lots of tensions, particularly over Taiwan recently. Um, what's your sense of how things, how how worried we should be about what's happening in in the Far East?
4: Yeah, I mean, we should be very concerned. Um, and I would guess there's, there's two key words, probably, that align really with what Suzanne has just said. And they relate to balance of power and grey zone activities and so really the war in Ukraine has created an unbalance in the international system and it's one that if we were being optimistic we might have hoped China would use as a way to increase its kind of assimilation of Taiwan without military force because the implication would be that it's moving um, or it's going to move to act in some way militarily where that would then allow it to gain economically and socially with with Taiwan if it didn't. But what's actually happened is the United States have escalated, understandably, but escalated their rhetoric towards Taiwan and actual actions towards Taiwan, which have reinforced the idea that their so-called strategic ambiguity, whereby they may or may not defend Taiwan if China were to attack, is drifting very much towards the position of, the U.S. and Japan would potentially defend Taiwan and include the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands in that, which are disputed between China and Japan. So you have a change in the status quo. And that's very dangerous because there's been one there for a long time. And then just quickly on the grey zone point, the change in that status quo is being escalated by China's use of so-called grey zone tactics so, for example, in the in the case of those islands that I just mentioned, the Senkaku-diaoyu, they're uninhabited, but they are surrounded not just by Coast Guard and military of Japan and China, but also by fishing boats. And China use fishing boats, civilian fishing boats, as a kind of cover for entering Japanese territorial waters in and around those islands. And that's extremely dangerous because, it, again, it alters the status quo. Yeah, so with
0: China, I mean, we've had... Um, it- that visit from Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan um, recently, um, and she landed um, in in the on the island at the beginning of August. And this is what she had to say when she when she arrived. A delegation came here to send an unequivocal message: America stands with Taiwan. The world faces a choice between democracy and autocracy. America's determination to preserve democracy here in Taiwan and around the world. Remains ironclad. Why do you think she went now? And why is America changing its policy on Taiwan, do you think?
4: Because this is a golden opportunity from the United States' point of view. So you have a situation where, as we mentioned, the balance of power is shifting, and the United States has a chance to try and define where its borders are. And it's backed by a newly elected conservative leader in Korea and also by a staunchly conservative, somewhat anti-Chinese establishment in Japan. So it has a chance to shift the regional balance of power and consolidate its role as regional hegemon and, and global hegemon vis-a-vis China. So I'm kind of mildly
3: anxious that that, that we sort of, we start with this, um, well, we start by talking about one side as being irrational, and now we're talking about America kind of as if it is rational. So I want to kind of, Push a little bit, how rational is that I can see there's an opportunity for for America, but isn't it becoming the agent of kind of chaos in this context, disrupting the the regime that was stable beforehand? Does it understand that it's taking those risks or
4: yeah absolutely i mean this is this is the kind of um you know the perennial question right whether particularly we should include ethics and morality in foreign policy. there are many in the foreign policy and international relations community who essentially believe that ethics should not be part of international relations, that it isn't underlyingly the driving motivation. And so it shouldn't be used as a pretext to enact policy. But the United States historically has almost without fail used ethics as a pretext or some kind of ideology as a pretext for changing the status quo to its advantage in international politics. And so that's really what we're seeing in the case of Taiwan. It has an easy chance, if you like, to stand on the the side of so-called morality um, whilst exercising real politics beneath that.
3: But but do you think that America fully considers the potential effects of those kinds of actions in China, perhaps also in Ukraine? Is it thinking ahead about where these things might go? Does it have a long game? Or is it being a bit more reactive?
4: Well, this is also a question that is divisive, particularly in the United States. There are certainly long-term thinkers, right? There are those in the U.S. policy establishment who have seen the comings and goings since World War II, really, and look at this as a long-term project in terms of securing U.S. interests, particularly in the Asia-Pacific. But on the other hand, you have short-term political plays which are mostly designed for a domestic audience and certainly Nancy Pelosi's, you know, visit to Taiwan, and then the following delegations since then, I think we can we can safely say that a large part of that is to do with appealing to a domestic US audience. So you have the, the the interplay between international and domestic politics going on there as well.
2: And just to highlight with the kind of use of force and the posturing that takes place, you are not operating in a vacuum. There is this kind of cloud this fog of war that you exist in and so yes you can have a long-term strategy but that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have to see it through Think events happen and so you always see that in warfare and the same occurs in kind of this this posturing of you having to respond to instant events etc there's a great deal of luck involved etc etc so when you say, "Oh, were they thinking ahead?" Well, they might be, and they should be, but they also have to accept this environment of
3: risk. Yeah. So just so that just so that I'm clear, I'm understanding what you're both arguing. There is a kind of interaction between the Russia-Ukraine situation and the China-Taiwan situation, and the key interaction is America seeing opportunities because of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And but the assumption there on the Americans' part is that that definitely weakens Putin.
4: Well, only to a certain extent. I mean, that, that's, that's less relevant, really, certainly from an Asia-Pacific perspective, right? What's very relevant is how China both responds to the conflict in Ukraine and then how as, a, how as an extended function of that, it also responds to the situation in Taiwan. And so really what you have is the United States viewing this as, yes, a conflict in the Ukraine, but ultimately, it's about a global competition for power. And that's something which is going to ultimately play out more intensely in the Asia-Pacific, probably, than it is in Europe.
3: Is that is that partly because China sees an opportunity if it thinks America is distracted and having to attend to to Europe in a way it hasn't had to for a while, that it's taking its eye off the ball? Is that part of what's going on? And then America's trying to show it's not taking its eye off the ball?
4: Well, I mean, I don't think... the the eyes have ever been off the ball, <laughs> <laughs> okay. in, in that sense. <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 you know, as Suzanne was alluding to, basically it's about the pieces moving. And it's, you can think of it almost like a game of chess. If you have a static situation, the Cold War was a classic example of this, then you have relative, and it's only relative, but you have relative stability. If you start to get dynamism in the international system, it makes things much more dangerous because all the pieces are moving at the same time.
3: So so is the nuclear threat, to come back to Zan. maybe not, in fact, Russia, Ukraine, but is in the Pacific? Is that a possibility? I'm glad you're pausing, because maybe then things aren't quite as bleak. Oh, they're always bleak.
2: <laughs> they're always bleak. I'm, I'm pausing because I think currently the threat is more, or the nuclear threat is more in Ukraine, Russia. That doesn't discount... There being a threat in the Asia-Pacific, it's a very complicated situation, but I can't foresee why China would use its relatively limited nuclear arsenal uh, in that area. My concern, as I said, with China is the use of other military technology, which, whilst may not have a radioactive radiation effect, uh, you know would cause widespread destruction. And going back to the United States, I would say another aspect is the eyes can be stretched. So you can only effectively deploy force over a limited area. And so as it's increasingly stretched over kind of a wider front, that can lead perhaps to opportunities for China to say, actually, this could be our opportunity. And and you have, you know, long-term... The United States has the problem that economically you have to fund a military; it takes a lot of resources. There tends to be there for a long-term decline in your overall power, etc. And it's always got that problem. So, as you said, there's this balance of power playing out. And long-term, could that lead all these dilemmas lead to a shift towards the power shifting towards China?
0: So one of the things that Stephen Lovegrove said in his talk was less war, war and more jaw-jaw, right? Which is a sort of classic, uh, you know, we need to talk more and we need to less posturing. Is that possible? Is that reasonable? Is it achievable? Is talking to the enemy the way out of this problem? Ra, what do you think?
4: In the Asia-Pacific, it has been very difficult to do that. Um, You know, what we've actually had is a kind of sort of decoupled set of narratives, right? So China produces one narrative and projects that mostly to its own people and its allies. Japan does the same. The US does the same and, and so on. And what it means is is different states and leading actors within those states are kind of talking past each other. And so that's fine when you have, again, a situation which is relatively stable, because if people accept the status quo, they can talk past each other and nobody cares once you have a situation where those pieces start to come into play, where they start to actually engage, as you're now getting in and around Senkakutiaoyu Islands, for example, then it makes those narratives less credible, particularly to the domestic populations, and that's very dangerous. So you need to find a way to, for example, through dialogue, decide upon a new and somewhat agreeable status quo. And that was done, to a certain extent, in the, in the Senkakutiaoyu case, where China and Japan agreed on a mechanism by which they would kind of keep each other out of the zones that they believe were theirs. But the simple fact is, is those underlying narratives are totally contradictory. So they're mutually exclusive. And it means when those narratives have to have to be demonstrated to be true, they will come into direct conflict with each other. And that's kind of what's happening now out there in the East China Sea.
0: What about talking to Putin? Is that possible? Is it is it realistic? Is it achievable? Could we make progress in that in that area? Even through an intermediary?
3: Reporting Correct. again.
2: <laughs> well, these are tough questions, aren't they? They are tough questions. And, and it's just such a complicated area. Because to be able to talk to Putin, he needs to be able to find a way back from the conflict that would satiate the Russian public, that he'd be able to go to them and say, we have achieved what we set out to achieve. And given the widespread aims that he had at the start of the conflict, there is a question about whether that is possible, Where whether there is that a way off the cliff. And also, historically, to have meaningful dialogue in international politics both sides need to really think that that is the way that they can get what they want and that has often come from nearly destroying the world such as the Cuban missile crisis uh, and other aspects of the cold war in the late uh, in the 60s which meant that the US and Russia entered this period of détente uh, whereby they started to negotiate arms control treaties, etc. Because they'd got to a point where economically they couldn't uh, continue with the increase in arms, but also they'd had a bit of a scare. And so we started to see more negotiation. I don't currently see that situation with Russia, but
0: you never know. Well, let's keep our fingers crossed, Alex of what's your sense from a Ukrainian perhaps perspective? And also you've studied international relations with these guys What's your sense of, is there a way out of this Ukraine crisis? And and what could that be?
1: Well, I can certainly tell you what the way out for Ukrainians is, and that's victory, militarily, because uh, even in intellectual circles that I uh, listen to and read, uh, that is the narrative that's being perpetuated, and for a good reason, because uh, we have extensive history with uh, dealing with imperial Russia, both in the Soviet sense and in the Romanov sense. Um, and unfortunately, negotiations with that uh, particular state have not been fruitful in either of those eras, uh, for us at least, for for, you, for Ukrainians. Um, the the other aspect uh, that sort of makes the uh, peaceful negotiation way out difficult is how. Um, how Russia is behaving itself on Ukrainian territory. There is already reports of uh, numerous war crimes, and I have just li- uh, listened to a uh, talk yesterday that um, highlighted that after Kherson is liberated, which is the southern part, uh, there will be even more uh, war crime reports because uh, there was uh, there's been a uh, civilian talk intercepted describing all of these horrors. So. Yeah, the way out for Ukrainians, as as in myself and as in the civilians and the um, armed forces, is victory. And, yeah, the problem with Putin for us, at least for, for the Ukrainian perspective, is that he does not think Ukraine should exist. And he does not recognize its sovereignty. He does not recognize its uh, independence. He does not recognize its people. He does not recognize its culture, language. The list goes forever you could you could write a whole book on this um and this is this is what we're dealing with this is a historical narrative that's been perpetuated and that's why i think at least and many of many of people that i listen to think this war is happening because this is a you know this is a program that the the russian state has been sort of dialing into their people's brains essentially
0: yeah, and incredibly difficult for, for you and for um, and for the, the rest of the Ukrainian nation. Alan, we're, we're coming up towards the end of our discussion. Are you, do you feel any reassured or are you even more worried now than when we started?
3: I'm very worried and I'm worried for everybody. I, I'm worried for Alex because at one level, what we've done is talk about how his, his country is kind of just a pawn in a larger game. And that's not that's not how you wanna think about it. It's very personal and very immediate for you. So I worry for you. But I'm also, yeah, my colleagues have not reassured me that that the, the institutions and rules are in place to help people come to agreements that avoid this kind of conflict. And what we haven't talked about is the quality of the leaders that we have in all of the different countries that we've talked about. Are they the right people for be for this for these kinds of times? So yeah. I'm I'm trying to think of an upbeat and positive way to end this, but I don't think I have one, except that at least there are people who kind of know what's going on. (laughs)
0: We'll have to wait and see, won't we? Thank you, everybody, for our discussion. Thank you um, to Alex Burov, to Suzanne Doyle, Ra Mason. Um, Thanks to the BBC and ABC for our news clips. Next month, uh, we'll be talking about the new Conservative leader and we'll see what they have to say about how uh, to deal with international policy. Um, And we'll also probably talk a little bit about Boris Johnson's legacy. But that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.